Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 as we continue through Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. As you're turning there, one Christian author wrote these words, this one line. Most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. Most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of believers is due to unforgiveness. Those are weighty, poignant, powerful words, and it comes in a very weighty text uh, this morning in Matthew 18. And as the focus of Jesus' ministry uh, narrows, as we have seen, from ministering to the crowds at large, healing people from the crowds, feeding the thousands, uh, his his uh, ministry narrows in on teaching the disciples what are the characteristics that are to define his society, his own church, his own people. He made the promise there beginning in chapter 16, I will build my church. And what we see is that along with humility, forgiveness takes center stage. Forgiveness one to another uh, is to uh, characterize the very heart of his people. We saw last week that in the first half of chapter 18, Jesus was warning about what? He was warning about causing other people to stumble, causing other people to sin, and in humility seeking to purge and mortify sin in our own lives. So warning about causing other people to sin, working sin out of our own lives, well here Jesus is addressing a different question, and that is what happens when someone sins against you? How do I respond? When discord or division disrupts a relationship among a brother or sister in Christ, it could be a husband and wife who are Christians, a Christian parent and a Christian child. What's so wonderful about our Lord's teaching this morning, as we will see, as He does so graciously and masterfully, as He teaches about forgiveness relationally on the horizontal level, is how much He teaches us about his relationship to us. And that's what we need. That's the very motivation for forgiveness. So we listen now to God's word, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 35. Jesus goes on and he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, I'll pay. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, there is, there is much in this text that could be addressed. I pray, I hope that two things at least are pressed upon us. One, that we would know and sense the weight of God's forgiveness in canceling our debt. The richness and depth of His grace and mercy for us as believers. And two, that we would be desiring and pursuing right and good and pure relationships uh, with one another in the body of Christ. Christian with Christian. Jesus' teaching here reinforces the truth, the reality that the believer really cannot separate his orthodoxy, what he believes, right doctrines, right understanding from orthopraxy, his right practice, and how he lives his Christian life. Those things go hand in hand. They go right uh, together. And one of the central places that our doctrine is to be manifest in our lives is in the context of relationships within the body of Christ. And so here Jesus is addressing one of, if not arguably, the central characteristic that marks the Christian community, uh, that marks every professing believer. We heard from 1 John chapter 4 earlier that it's the love of God in us that is to be evidenced in our love for uh, one another. We think of uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul's words to the church in Corinth, those well-known words in chapter 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I have, I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Perhaps even implying that one could possess these kinds of things. But, but without love, they are missing the very central characteristic of being a follower of the Lord Jesus. Uh, back in the year 2000, 20 uh, years ago, I had the privilege, along with my closest friend, of traveling to uh, Switzerland and uh, visiting Labrie Fellowship. Labrie, a word meaning a shelter. It's a study and re retreat center uh, there in Switzerland, founded by uh, the late Francis Schaeffer, a theologian and Christian apologist. And I just remember a long trek up a windy 
road with a heavy pack on. Wouldn't recommend that way of travel. Uh, but when we arrived, one of the first things that we were handed was a copy of Schaefer's book, The Mark of the Christian. Very short, 30 or 35 pages. If you haven't read it, I commend it to you. Here's the opening words of this work, The Mark of the Christian. Through the centuries, Schaefer says, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They've worn marks in the lapels of their coats. They've hung chains about their necks. They've even had special haircuts. Of course, there's nothing wrong with any of this, but there is a much better sign. It is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church till Jesus comes back. What is this mark? Jesus makes it clear what will be the distinguishing mark of the Christian, and he quotes from John chapter 13. A new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Not only is Matthew 18 here about love, love for one another, but we see, just as we saw in John 13, this love is specifically to be fueled and motivated and have a particular shape to it. It's to be shaped based on someone else's love. The love of God demonstrated in Jesus Christ. So that forgiving a brother or canceling a debt or removing a barrier between believers is to be considered in light of something else. And what that something else is, is the immeasurable debt that we once owed, but which in Jesus Christ God forgave. That's the purpose of the parable in great part that Jesus gives, to support what he is teaching. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. So we see the, the horizontal relationship is to take shape according to the vertical relationship that God has established and demonstrated in the life of the believer, his followers. And Jesus knows those relationships get tried, they get tested, they get proven right, in the body. It's part of the blessing of, of the church, is how uh, the Lord shapes and forms us after his likeness. And so look at the opening words of this particular section, just verse 15. The, the words, the individual words, uh, each, almost every one of them, weigh heavily. They matter significantly. Verse 15, if your brother, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Jesus' aim is very clear, what he is after. It's the restoration of the believer. Uh, he's not trying to catch the brother. He's not trying to condemn uh, the brother. He's trying to restore. You've gained your brother. That's what he's uh, offering, that's what he's suggesting there. So he's not trying to catch, he's not trying to condemn here. I'm reminded of, a, of an arcade game, uh, the Whack-A-Mole. You ever seen that? I've played it before. 
Uh, you got a mallet, you got 60 seconds, and moles just pop up randomly out of these holes, and you just hit as many as you can, as hard as you can, as fast as you can in those 60 seconds. That's not the approach of addressing sin. I've tried it in my own life. I've tried it in the lives of others. It doesn't work very well, right? Jesus gives a gracious, sensitive, gentle approach to, a, to engaging one another right? and considering one another. There, there's, a, there's a gracious process that he's providing here. And the goal is to gain the brother, to gain the sister. Those words mean to win him back. And indeed, it implies a repentance on the part of the straying brother. But notice it's more than personal reconciliation between two people. That's not just what he's after. He's actually calling us to go, to engage, to guard another person from forfeiting his soul. It's seeking to restore him or keep him uh, in the flock. Notice, uh, oftentimes these words, beginning at verse 15, as I have read, are taken in isolation, but they come right off the heel of verses 10 through 14. You remember those words from last week? That was about the shepherd who will leave the 99 to go after the one, that that one would not perish. And then you see this sheep who has gone astray in what he has done. He has sinned against another brother. You see the connection. Just as a shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one, the brother is to go after the one. Go, he says. Guarding him from forfeiting his, his soul. And so Jesus is really elevating and intensifying the value of the community. Uh, it's not like the world. Out in the world, we might hear things like, Quote, what right do you have to judge me? What right do you have to speak even into my life at all? Or, just mind your own business, I'll mind my own business. That's not what Jesus has in mind for his community. Jesus is commanding, it's not even a suggestion. It's a command. The one sinned against in this context is to go and gain the brother. You notice in this particular uh, passage, the initiation is placed on the one sinned against. Right? It's simply loving accountability. But Jesus covers all basis. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter 5, at verse 23, he said, if you are offering your gift at the altar, in other words, you're in the very act of worship as we are here, and he says, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, there it means a just cause. That is, uh, there's, there's good reason that you have sinned against someone else. He says, there, right then and there, leave your gift and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come, offer your gift. And so there, in chapter 5, the initiation is to be done by the one who has sinned against his brother. So whether we have been sinned against or we have sinned against someone else, Jesus calls for initiation, for engagement. Uh, Paul says something very similarly, very important as we consider Matthew 18, is Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, meaning caught up, uh, bound, 
in sin, in any transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And who is it that we are to engage? It's the brother or the sister. This is the church. Now, this would include all fellow believers within the local church. We might extend it beyond the local church, the universal church. But it would also include that smaller inner circle of people that we're very close with, a Christian husband and Christian wife, uh, Christian siblings living in the same home, same household, a Christian dad and their Christian child. In fact, those are the relationships that are often in most need of the application of Jesus' words. And of course, we see the seriousness uh, and the weight of our Lord's words in the consequence of of unrepentance. Did you hear those repeated words? If if he refuses to listen, verse 16, bring another, bring two, three more witnesses If he refuses to listen to them. And then a third time, if he refuses to listen even to the church. This this is all language for someone who's unrepentant in heart. This is an unrepentant person. Now please, please hear this. It is not the sin or the cause of discord or division that brings the continuing path of consequence. That's not why the consequence continues to unfold. It wasn't the sin. It wasn't the division. It is the unrepentance of heart. As soon as someone repents, asks for forgiveness, we've won our brother. The, the, The path discontinues immediately. God has all the room and grace to handle his people's sin. My sin and your sin. Paul said in Romans 5, verse 20, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. There is no sin that God cannot handle in your life or mine. No division that he cannot mend. We saw last Sunday evening the preaching from Pastor Bill, Psalm 51, David's famous prayer of confession. Here, a man who not only committed adultery, but then schemed to have her husband murdered. And what did David pray? David knew. Here, a man after the heart of God, he knew. And he could say, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me uh, from my sin. This is what you desire, O Lord, from that psalm. A broken and contrite heart you will not despise. And that's what he gives to the Christian. A broken and contrite heart. So whatever sin we commit or is committed against us, his grace is enough. It is sufficient. It's not the sin It's the unrepentant heart. So important. But sin, it's not just transgression. It causes pain. It can divide brothers and sisters. When a person's name is slandered or gossiped about, when 
uh, unrighteous anger surfaces from a spouse, or cutting words tear down, or there's abuse, or a child that rebels. A sin creates pain. So it's no wonder that Peter asks this question in verse 21. Lord, how many times will my brother sin against me and I'm to forgive him? How many times? Seven? He's thinking that would, that would be a generous number. Seven. I think Peter is essentially asking this question. What's the scale? When does mercy run dry and justice take hold? Perhaps we've wondered that in our own relationship uh, with the Lord, in our own struggle, in our own sin, particular sins. When will the mercy of God run dry in my life? Well, Jesus' response is quite astonishing. He says, not seven times, but 77 times, Peter. So here Jesus is giving to Peter, and I think he's giving to all his disciples. Here's the scale. Here's the lens through which I want you to see and relate to other people. And his parable goes on to explain it. Verse 23, the kingdom of heaven. Peter, my kingdom is like a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And here comes the scale. Here comes the lens. When he began to settle A servant was brought who owed him 10,000 talents, and he could not pay it. So the picture is clear. The servant Jesus is wanting Peter to think of is Peter himself. This is you and I. You're like that first servant, as he begins to tell the story anyway. When applying the scale of God's justice to our lives, the debt is 10,000 talents. In Jesus' day, one talent is... It was equivalent to 20 years' worth of wages. One talent. Modern equivalent would be hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you make a good, large living, we're talking perhaps millions. 20 years' worth of wages. One talent. He owes 10,000 of these. You get it, Peter? The debt is astronomical. And so Jesus is calling Peter and us to relate to others not based on our current position. The Christian is justified. He's getting Peter and he's getting us to think about where we came from, the position we used to have. Run that through your mind, Peter, disciples, in your relation to other people. We were indebted. We owed a debt that we could never pay. It was a cost that only he could pay. There was only one who had the worth sufficient to pay. Frederick Bruner, a a commentator, says, uh, We are not usually aware that we are so bad. The New Testament message works hard to give us an assessment of the human condition that we don't usually hear. The gospel tells human beings the truth about themselves. The debt was massive. This is why Paul in part prays there in 
Ephesians chapter 3, that we would be able to comprehend what is the breadth, the height, the length, the depth of the love of Jesus Christ. Because though our debt was so great, though our sin ran so deep, Christ's love and grace is greater still. That scale, that lens, enables a person to begin relating to others as God has related to us. And I want us to hear this. Disciples of Christ are called to see and relate to others not according to how others relate to us, but according to the way God in Christ related to us. That is radically transforming for one's relationships in this life. And it's not only for brothers and sisters in Christ in that case, it's for for enemies that I am to engage and think about other people in the way that God engaged and had me in mind. It's not eye for eye. That's important for justice and for the civil sphere, for fairness and equity. But Jesus guards against a kind of retaliation or revenge. We go beyond justice into this category of potential of mercy and grace. So astronomical was the debt and it could not be paid. But the servant cries out, have patience. And verse 27 says, out of pity the master released him and forgave him the debt. Out of pity, literally out of the master's heart for the man. Another key. His heart went out for the person. He valued he saw the value, the worth of the person. He went, his heart went out. There was pity for him. And so true forgiveness is out of a heart for another. And it involves canceling a debt. Something is causing a division. There's a debt. It requires a canceling of that debt. And we pray this in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So important that Jesus would want us to be speaking those words and thinking those things in the prayer he taught us. And of course, because forgiveness cancels a debt, forgiveness is costly. Debts have a cost. Uh, To absorb the debt, to cancel it, to forgive it, that's to suffer pain. So there's something very costly about forgiveness that we experience in our lives. And of course, this meal before us that we will partake of together is a picture uh, that, our God, that our Lord has given of the cost of canceling our debt. We hear from Colossians chapter uh, 2. Paul says, You who were dead in your trespasses and sin, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. To forgive one another, to forgive another person is costly. But unforgiveness has an even greater cost, as we see in the parable. To the unforgiving servant, the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
And the master delivered him over until he should pay all his debt. Uh, The second servant, I think it was a hundred denarii, maybe one third of a year's wages. Now, Jesus' teaching here as we come to a, a close in Matthew calls for this gracious engagement on a horizontal level in the relationships of brothers and sisters in Christ. But there is also a very important, very ongoing practical aspect to forgiveness that is much more on the vertical level in our lives. You see it in Mark chapter 11, verse 25. There, Jesus says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespass. There, Jesus is not talking about a transaction or an engagement with another person, but simply a spirit of forgiveness from the heart. Remember the opening quote that I shared. Most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. Author Sam Storms says this, This begins to make sense when we understand that unforgiveness breeds bitterness, resentment, anger, unkindness, even despair. So there is the vertical work of purging these things that seek to creep creep up and take hold of our lives that are connected oftentimes to unforgiveness. But not something I necessarily need to work out relationally. It could be something that someone has done in the past to me. We've even reconciled. But that past still haunts me. It still works against me. It's, it's creeping, and ma- creeping in, in my heart and making, creating bitterness, resentment, anger, unkindness. This is the ongoing sanctifying work of the Lord by His Spirit and grace in, in, in and through us. And the more we see ourselves in light of the abundant grace of God, His pardoning mercy, the canceling of our debt, uh, the more we are freed. The more we are freed to love others as God in Christ has loved us. So love, love one another as Christ has loved us. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank You for, for Your Word, heavy words, clear words to us, a gracious path to engage, to care for one another, to account for one another. Lord, we recognize the value that You place upon Your covenant community, that we with we would with a gentle spirit engage one another. And Lord, at the same time, that you would be sanctifying us, mortifying sin in our lives and reminding us of the debt we once owed, but that in Jesus Christ you have forgiven. We pray, Lord, that you would work those feelings of bitterness or resentment or anger that surface in our lives that all of your, all of your people feel and um, deal with on a regular basis to varying degrees, varying levels. Lord, we pray that we might know the freedom uh, that comes from seeing and relating to others, uh, Lord, as you have related to us in Jesus Christ. And for this we pray with thanks in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you would stand uh, before we partake of the Lord's Supper and preparation for it, we're going to sing number uh, 501 in your hymnal, Just As I Am Without One Plea. <laughs> 